Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and the Bitter Script Reader, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories. These are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or The Mothership. And today we're looking at a Law & Order original recipe, Season 18, Episode 10, Tango. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, my wife, Rebecca Lavoie. Hola, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. Why such <laughs> hostility in that? I think you just hola'd me, and I wasn't sure what was going on there for a second. That's all. I, that's right. I forgot you took French in high school. <laughs> Bonjourno. <laughs> and rounding out the panel is our special guest, the blogger known as the Bitter Script Reader. Hello. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Very happy to be here today. Anonymous guest. It's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's your pen name, and we can't call you that, so what shall we refer to you tonight? Just call me Bitter. When I've done other appearances, everybody finds it pretty easy to refer to me as that. So Just call bitter me Bitter. Fine. <laughs> Just call me Bitter. Now, uh, so you have a quasi-secret life because you're in the world of entertainment. Are you uh, an important gatekeeper? I was. I'm no longer a script reader, but I used to be a script reader at one of the big five agencies. And in brief, basically, I would read scripts so that people more important than me wouldn't have to. And so I'd, I'd read a script. I'd write up a two-page you know, breakdown of the synopsis, a one-page breakdown of what was good and what was bad. And then people much higher paid than I am get to read it and sound like they read the script and get on important phone calls and, and BS their way through it. Wow. Um, but yes, we're gatekeepers in a way. We, we find the good material and filter out a lot of the bad material. So you adopted this uh, pseudonym because this was the kind of thing where people would really you know, want to bug you and get you scripts and butter you up? Or is it just nobody wanted to know that you were the guy tweeting? It was mostly to avoid any retribution when I was going out for jobs, because when I started the blog, it was a lot about the bad things I'd seen in writing or the bad things I'd seen in scripts that were submitted. And sometimes I would use movies as an example of bad examples of writing. And so I didn't want to be walking into a meeting to interview at, say, J.J. Abrams' company and have them Google and find that I said that, you know, the latest episode of Lost or whatever was terribly written. (laughs) So it was kind of more self-protection in terms of, okay, this way nothing I say here is going to come back to bite me five years down the line when I'm in a meeting with somebody whose work I picked apart. And it oddly turned into the sort of thing where I'm known among enough writers now where if I go to, say, WonderCon, and I hang out at the bar and I recognize a couple writers. If I go up and say my name, they won't know me, but I can always go up and go, hey, we follow each other on Twitter. I'm the bitter script reader. 
and always the face lights up and goes, oh, yes, uh, you know, I love this thing you wrote about this. So this fake thing I created to shield myself actually became one of the more lucrative things I could have done for my career, oddly enough. Now, you are a legit Law & Order fan, and you very much enjoy the late season one. So can you make an argument for why fans should reevaluate this era in Law & Order? There are two distinct eras of the original show. I love the season five through 10 era, which is probably, I think, the greatest era. And then the second renaissance was when they kicked Jack upstairs to being the full DA in season 18. And I think by then, enough of the fan base had gone off that they didn't come back and appreciate how the writing got really good then. Uh, due in part to uh, Renee Balser came back to run the show for those last three years. And I think that the episode we're talking about today, unfortunately, doesn't have... And in many examples of what I love about these later seasons. But I think there's an interesting dynamic in kicking Jack upstairs and replacing him with somebody who is even more of a maverick than Jack was in his prime. And there were some episodes this season that I thought they quite wonderfully would deliberately parallel early episodes in Jack's run. And you would have Cutter do this and something and Jack would call him out on it. And I remember when those arguments would come up, I would turn to my roommate and say, oh, it's funny this is happening because in season five, Jack actually pulled a stunt like this, blah, blah, blah. And then the scene and, would go on and, and Cutter, Cutter would, would throw say, well, that back in his face. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cutter yeah. would throw it in his face. Uh, and, and I always thought that was wonderful that you have a show that exists so long that you can really draw on that long history and get Jack to a place where he's not Adam Schiff, but where he has to take a look at the larger picture and be accountable in a way he wasn't when he was the guy on the front lines there. And it's a wonderful dynamic that they've got going in these later seasons with Cutter being even more dangerous sometimes than Jack was. So I just really enjoy that part of these latter years. Plus, we also get to see Jack in a tuxedo a lot more often than we did in the <laughs> earlier years, which is always fun to see him in a tuxedo going to some event. Raising campaign funds. <laughs> exactly. So, Bitter, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Oh, I know that some of this is because these guys were the guys when I started watching regularly, but Lenny and Ray. Anybody with Briscoe is fantastic, but I'm a huge fan of the Jerry Orbach-Benjamin Bratt partnership there. Now, who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite Law and Order district attorney prosecutorial team. Oh, this is an easy one. I don't think I've heard this on any of your episodes yet, but obviously Jack McCoy, who's one of the greatest characters in all of television in my mind, and my favorite partner of his was Jamie Ross, hmm. uh, mm -hmm. actually. And I think some of that owes to the fact that seasons seven and eight are some of the strongest writing in terms of the legal dilemmas on the show. And I think it's interesting just the progression of partners that you have with Jack. You know, you give him uh, Claire, and she's very much a protege, and then Jamie is someone who's a bit more on equal footing with him. You know, maybe not officially in terms of the office, but she would stand up to him more. And she felt a lot more comfortable sometimes countermanding him or, or pushing it further. And I think that's the most interesting dynamic, because once they did that and they had to replace her, you've exhausted the two most obvious ways. And so the only thing to do then is to make Jack's partner more of a maverick than he is. And I don't think it ever really worked with Angie Harmon because you want Jack McCoy to be the cowboy. Mm -hmm. And it felt weird anytime he was the more conservative member of the team. 
I think that there are some wonderful episodes with Angie Harmon's character, but for me, it's Jamie Ross. I think is that that's the perfect dynamic and the perfect partnership. Wow, you're quite the maverick with that choice. I like it, <laughs> and I, you know, I like your reasoning. I like that you have a real reason. It's not just like because Jamie Ross is hot. Like you have a real oh, reason. Oh, there's that, in the but he just isn't going to say that. No, I know, but I like no, it. I, I <laughs> if I was judging there, she would be in the top two. I might have to give <laughs> the the nudge to to Connie Ruby Rosa. Who, yeah. Oddly appropriate to the elements of today's episode, Absolutely. now that I think about it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, she is the whole package. <laughs> Total package. Total package. <laughs> All right, now let's look at the first half of this episode, season 18, episode 10, Tango. We open on two drunk teens trying to get their car out of impound when her friend passes out and Marie stumbles away into the night. You didn't see where she went? No, she got all weird when I called the ambulance. She just took off. What, down the highway? Yeah, I guess. Which direction? North. So what, you just watched as a drunk teenager wandered onto the highway? What am I, super nanny? Green and Lupo track the missing girl's path to a sketchy motel where she's seen on video being carried in by a sketchy-looking pimp followed by a sketchy-looking hooker. There's blood in the room and the teen cell phone is under the bed and at this point... We're getting a little worried about Anne Marie. <laughs> the hooker goes by Sugar, but she grew up with rich suburban parents as Melinda. She won't give up her pimp boyfriend's location. Meantime, Anne Marie's body is found in a duffel bag tossed in a dumpster. She'd been raped, strangled, and smashed over the head. To find their prime suspect, the cops spring Melinda, and Lupo sends her a note that she thinks is a threat from the pimp. She arranges a meeting where the detectives nab their suspect, Tito. Under interrogation, Tito says the sex was consensual and he was surprisingly good at it. <laughs> he blames the murder on Melinda, but thinking her love has abandoned her, Melinda admits to watching Tito rape and kill the teenager. So now between Anne-Marie and Sugar, we're learning that the big city is not the kind of place that innocent maidens want to enter. Especially uh, if you're going to have really crappy garage attendants who just let you wander out of the garage and onto the highway. Well, as he said, who am I, super nanny? I was actually kind of impressed with the garage attendants at first, though, because they were going to call an ambulance for somebody who clearly was suffering from alcohol poisoning and, and so forth. But yeah, the sort of lack of empathy as she wandered onto the West Side Highway really made me think, you know, maybe not the best place for some Long Island girls to be and uh, on a weekend when their parents are out of town. Yeah, my reaction on that scene was I bought him being as callous as he was when she walked off. But then later when the cops are coming back and asking him, there's like zero remorse on this guy's part. You know, as you said, <laughs> oh, my super nanny, like. No soul searching at all. I, I thought that guy's just terrible at his job. <laughs> One of the things about this episode, the way it starts, is that vomiting is apparently like the worst thing that can ever happen in the history of the world. Because, <laughs> you know, not only does this guy basically let the girl wander off because, you know, the one girl vomits, but then also the cab driver basically lets anything in the world happen to poor Anne Marie because he thinks she's going to throw up in his cab. Like, throwing up, apparently, is the worst thing that anyone can possibly do. So, you know, whatever. They might get murdered if I throw them out of my cab, but, you know, that's better than said, throwing yeah. up. Yes, I don't want you to yeah. throw up in the cab, so I'll drop you off at that sketchy hotel with yes. this creepy guy. With this guy who says he knew you when you were walking <laughs> on the West Side Highway. Yeah. What a coincidence. So God bless Jerry Orbach and Dennis Farina, but it's kind of great to see both detectives being able to do a foot chase. <laughs> yeah, I I had that thought, actually, when they were going after the guy, that Orbach didn't have to run after a perp for like seven or eight years there, and, and we now see both of them going. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was a very um, police-like of the two of them to actually run after that guy. And then also, when they were searching the room and they realized it was a crime scene, it looked very, very official. And that was like a big departure from very often. You know, you see the opening of Law and Order and they sort of discover the crime scene and it's just, they just kind of stand there being cavalier, <laughs> saying sarcastic things. But they actually looked like they knew what they were doing when they started searching that room. Did I not mention this is season 18? Yep. <laughs> It's true. It's true. And that scene had maybe one of my favorite moments in the episode where they tell the hotel manager, this is a crime scene. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know the gig. I'll send CSU. (laughs) It's a nice little touch in the writing. there. It was incredible. It was incredible. It was a real nod to the viewer, I think. And and also a nod to sort of like the actors who were sort of always in the situations again and again and again. But we always like to make fun of the, the fact that like these homicide detectives are talking to New York people and they're going on about their day like, I got to deliver these flowers. I can't talk to you about a homicide. But you have like the one guy who is in this. The The clerk. The clerk. The concierge. At the sketchy motel. (laughs) And, you know, he is actually like the first person who is like self-aware. Yes. About. And helpful. And helpful. (laughs) They said, like, didn't you ever think of calling 9-1? And he's like, you're joking, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I thought thought it was an excellent nod because it definitely broke uh, the expected convention. Usually the person they're talking to couldn't be bothered. They'd rather be doing anything else than helping the cops solve a murder. Now, I started this way, but I actually think that this is an important theme of the first half where we have two girls. We have Anne Marie and then we have Melinda slash Sugar who go to New York City and they ostensibly enter as innocents and then bad things happen to them. Bitter to you. Is this kind of like a modern fairy tale? Like, don't go in the woods? I think you found some subtext there that they didn't really mine all that well in the story, to be honest. Oh, so, was, oh, so you would like my I, writing I then? <laughs> I, think, I think that that maybe is the theme they could have pulled on and, and done more with. Uh, as we get into talking about this episode, my one thought about this episode after I watched it was... It's a very by rote episode of Law and Order. Like if you were to sort of assemble a Law and Order episode in a in a machine, this is what would result. It's not bad, and it doesn't take a ridiculous turn, but it's very straightforward and more straightforward than most of these episodes are. Like if you follow it, it's a very straight line in the investigation, and you know we get the typical complication that throws out the evidence, and even the court case is pretty straightforward until we get to that the thing that that happens with the juror. There isn't the usual you know complexity where oh we we think we're investigating a, a Dropbox thing and suddenly we found the suburban housewife who used to be a '60s radical. Right. Uh, <laughs> we don't get that left turn in the first half. And we don't have, like, the complex moral mystery in the second half. We don't get into any kind of bigger moral question. It's, okay, we've got, you know, these two suspects, and we're putting them on trial, and we're trying the case. And so I think the episode maybe could have used some of what you're talking about there uh, in terms of playing on the themes of of paralleling these women, maybe. To me, it was going to be like, oh, this is going to be a story about how Sugar's, like, rich Suffolk County parents, like, abused her, and that's why she ended up running away and turning into a meth head. But no, it didn't end up going there at all. It ended up being just this little tiny mystery between Sugar and Tito, who did it. Sometimes I do feel like they're playing with it, like maybe they were going to do it, and then something changed. I don't know, because I I agree. That wasn't the twist that they set up. The twist ended up being this sort of, no, it's not Tito, who's actually the killer, it is Melinda. Right, but it was complicated. They ended up going into that school. That was like a little side turn. They didn't have to go there to find someone to say where Sugar was. Well, no, they had to find Lysol. Well, and even... (laughs) Great name for a drug dealer. I I would go with Lysol if I could sling drugs and 
I needed a street name. Lysol's pretty good. And to be honest, the story doesn't do much with the idea that Melinda comes from the upper class, too. That's almost thrown away as quickly as the school is. Absolutely. Uh, at least as far as how much as it hits the plot. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I remember even as I was watching it, I had the thought that, like, I wonder if there's a rewrite here that took something out because there's a lot of shoe leather spent setting up things that don't really go off in the usual law and order tangents that we get. Yeah, like the fact that Anne-Marie's body is literally thrown away like trash. You know, she's in a dumpster. That, she's in a duffel bag in a dumpster. Yeah, but that didn't come up. Like, there was no payoff scene where it was like... You threw her away like trash. Like I was expect. I mean, there's usually that sort of roundabout that happens, even in the complicated episodes that do take the left turn in the middle. There's something that sort of shows you why they did the things that they did. And um, even though I felt like there were things about this episode that made it very redeemable, which we'll get to, I know, towards the end, I do think that some of these things were side stories that were ended up being sort of dropped, like and, and forgotten. It ended up being very linear and not going on. Too many of those tangents, which, you know, are just going to come back to the main story anyway. Right. Sometimes they don't even solve the original crime because it goes on, because it goes on a huge <laughs> yeah. tangent. Mothership Law and Order is usually really good about, you know, setting you on a path and then getting you logically, you know, somewhere where at the 45 minute mark you realize, oh, I don't know quite how we got here, but it made sense at the time. And this is just, no, we're we're taking, we're following that road all the way. <laughs> These are our people. Now, Lupo has no problem letting witnesses and suspects think someone even badder is going to hurt them if they don't cooperate. Yeah, you're talking about the fake note? I think I have an idea to boost Juliet. You got to tell me what the note said. So think a bitch can wrap me out and run away. <laughs> think it was too much? Huh? I'd make her hide from him. My maker runs to him to set the record straight. The fake note and talking <laughs> to the kid at the school. Yeah. I'm going to tell all the drug dealers you sent us. And when he's talking to Melinda, he calls you a skank. Yeah. He's not shy about, you know, I'm a cop and I'm not the one who's going to be able to smack you. Right. But I know who will. He's also not shy about handing a note to a kid on the street and telling them to do his bidding. Like, basically breaking the rule that cops are supposed to tell kids, like, don't talk to strangers and do, <laughs> and do what they tell you to do. Like, he does that to a kid in this episode. I think it's really interesting. I actually kind of loved his ruse with the note. I thought it was really clever, you know, when he gives uh, Sugar that note so that she'll think that Tito thinks she betrayed him and because uh, he wants to see what she'll do because he knows that immediately she's going to call him or whatever. I thought that was, you know, as a citizen who believes in justice, did it make me comfortable? No. But as a uh, as a clever thing that a cop does in a Law & Order episode, I actually thought it was a pretty impressive piece of police work. Bitter, what do you think that says about Lupo's character? I think it's an interesting way to make him a slightly darker guy than most of the people we've seen occupy that slot on the show. You know, Ray Curtis was, you know, clean cut, you know, Mr. Nice Guy. He he wouldn't go that far unless there was something stressing him like he was, you know, stressed out over his... Uh, Affair with Jennifer with Garner. <laughs> yeah, affair with Jennifer Garner. You know, when, when Ray got nasty with a perp, you knew that, okay, this is going to come back to that his wife threw him out or something. <laughs> and, you know, Ed had his gambling issues and he had a couple assault complaints against him, but he never got that sneaky uh, in his earlier days. So it was interesting to see a detective who was a little darker and... I was left with the feeling that in the real world, he probably would have gotten away with this in terms of the evidence staying in. Like, that was the one thing where it gets thrown out because it was a threat, where I felt like in the real world, 
this wouldn't have happened. This is the one way where Melinda's parents, Sugar slash Melinda's parents having money comes into play because she actually has a good lawyer. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, but, you know, come back to Lupo for a second. I, there were these knowing glances between Green and Van Buren when Lupo's dropping these veiled threats, but they don't seem to be disapproving glances. No, Lupo does what, to me, is the most efficient interrogation that has ever happened in that squad room. He gets Sugar to flip on Tito. You know what, Melinda? It's better this way. You'll be safer at Rikers. When we picked up Tito, he had a twenty-two in his pocket. He was gunning few for telling us about him. Hey, you know I did it. He figured you did it because you were jealous. Jealous he'd had a better woman. You don't understand anything. Yeah, he told me that screwing her after screwing you was like trading up from a dump truck to a caddy. He said at least she didn't just lie there like a junkie skank. And this is the one time... You're calling where, her a skank? Well, yeah, but this is the one time where he does play the card that these two girls were the same. Melinda and Anne-Marie were the same, and what Tito saw in her was what he used to see in you. And Cutter brought that up in the second half of the episode, too. Yeah, The yeah. idea that Melinda had started off as an Anne-Marie. Right, right. But I, I did love that little interrogation scene, and I think you're right, You know, especially when you see Van Buren approving of those tactics. It's very interesting, because Van Buren is very often like the mom of the squad room, will be like, nope, can't do that. You know, She's the one pulling people out of the interrogation room, saying, like, calm down, son. But she definitely liked what he was doing and, and put her stamp on it. And you know what? Again, did it make me comfortable as a citizen? Nope. Was it a good piece of police work to watch on TV? It absolutely was. I was a big fan of Lupo in this episode. You know, what's interesting is I think sometimes we hold the Law & Order cops to a slightly uh, higher standard you than think? we do other TV <laughs> cops because um, there's an episode at the end of season 8 I think it's the finale called Monster and it's one where there's a little girl who's been raped and murdered and it's a high pressure case and so McCoy tells Lenny and Ray go ahead, whatever you have to do and Ray's like, does that mean what I think it does? And it's like, go ahead. And they give what for them feels like the most brutal interrogation they've ever done, but you stack it up against NYPD Blue <laughs> right. or Homicide, and that's a day at the beach for those guys. Right, right. And so it's interesting the way we come to view the cops on Law & Order because as far as how tough they get in interrogation and how manipulative and sneaky they get. You're right. They don't often pull this sort of stunt that we see. But, you know, what's interesting is that the grittier, I'm doing air quotes right now, the grittier episodes of Law and Order, if you look at them contemporaneously with other gritty cop shows of that era, like the 80s, early 90s, it was not that good compared to those shows. I will say, mm -hmm. though, it was a whole lot better than cop rock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now let's look at the second half of this episode. The judge throws out Melinda's statements because of Lupo's trick with the note. You didn't think telling her he was going to shoot her would come back and bite us in the ass? We needed to find the guy that was item one on the agenda. Well, item two is going to be watching him walk out of jail. We still have the victim's blood in the room Tito was in. Melinda's room, and he claims Melinda killed her, could raise reasonable doubt. What about other witnesses? Seeking another witness, they find girlfriend beating, drug slinging Timmy, who promises to talk if they can get his possession charge knocked down. It's worth it because Timmy has an important clue. When Tito went to find a dumpster, Anne-Marie was still moving around inside the duffel bag. It means Melinda actually killed the girl while the pimp was out. At voir dire, one creepy juror keeps giving Ruberosa the eye, but Cutter keeps him. During the trial, Ruberosa gets an anonymous email complimenting her on her direct examination and her great legs. Melinda's conviction is all but assured... 
But Ruberosa is approached by the creepy juror who sent the email. Cutter talks her out of reporting the juror misconduct to the judge, which would ensure a mistrial. Though discouraged by the sexual politics, Ruberosa says nothing, and the jury convicts Melinda. Well, there was one awesome piece of detective work in the second half, which is Green and Lupo walk in with the murder weapon, a blow dryer that has <laughs> Anne-Marie's blood on the cord, Melinda's fingerprints on it, but not Tito's, and they had just pulled it out of the trash chute. <laughs> yeah, it was magic. It was. It was like, on the way over here, we did all these tests. Now, one of the things that confused me was that... Um, Timmy's girlfriend, the poor woman who was all beaten up in the shelter that they went and uh, interviewed. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the DAs, of course, kick the case back and they say, we need more evidence. You need to go interview more witnesses. And then they interview the witness, which confused me. (laughs) But the other thing was... If you want something done around here, you got to do it yourself. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that confused me was um, the girlfriend said she saw Sugar slash Melinda throwing a fancy designer bag into the trash chute, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So was she seeing her throw the body? No, she was getting rid of Anne Marie stuff. Because she doesn't, you know. That's what I couldn't figure out. I'm like, are we supposed to believe that poor little tiny meth head girl carried that robust Long Island teenager down the hallway in that duffel bag and threw her into the trash chute? I didn't think that that made sense. No, what happened was that Tito thought that he had killed Melinda. No, I know what happened. Oh, you do? But you're you're looking at me like you don't. I was confused by the witness testimony is all, the witness statement. I didn't understand what led them to find the hairdryer to begin with. Well, it was uh, dumb luck, I guess. (laughs) They were bound to. Otherwise, Tito would be going to jail instead of Melinda. But he was so good at sex. (laughs) (laughs) We have a Hey, It's That Guy in this episode. Hey, it's that guy. Now, first, we have actually more than one recognizable supporting actor or actress. First, we see in the role of Melinda Maria Dezia. She plays Polly on Orange is the New Black. Called it when I first saw her with her scabby mouth. But who can name the actor who played Timmy? Mm -hmm. That's Sean William Winters. And anybody who watched Oz probably recognized him immediately uh, from that show where he played Cyril. I'm sure you have in your notes he's the real-life brother of Dean Winters. uh, Who plays Cassidy. You You know my woman called the cops on me for smacking her around a little. The thing is, when they arrested me, I had a small amount of a a controlled substance on my person. He also might be recognizable to people who uh, have seen Goodwill Hunting. He's How do you the like them apples? Yeah. Yes. He's the douchebag preppy guy. Yeah, you just remember his long blonde hair. Yes, who hit on Minnie Driver in the bar. Mm-hmm. Huh. No, what? Actually, I think that's maybe where I recognized him from. Because I was thinking he reminded me of um, the guy who was insane elsewhere, who now only ever plays bad guys. He was the bad guy in 12 Months. David Morse. Yes, he re- he reminded oh. me of like a poor man's David Morse, and I was like, I know, I know that face from somewhere, and I would probably recognize him from Goodwill Hunting. No, you probably recognize that face because he looks exactly like Dean Win, <laughs> his brother, who plays Cassidy. Yeah. <laughs> now there is a scene between Jack McCoy and the Bronx DA Juan Delgado. You know, Jack, I'm a little surprised you were even able to find your way up here on that white horse of yours. Look, I know we've had our differences, cultural differences. I live in the real world. Do you live in a higher plane? I appreciate that. A higher plane. I've been prosecuting down and dirty in the trenches since you were... Since I was what? A backroom fixer for a political machine? I wasn't going to say that. I'll tell you what, Jack. One of my bureau chiefs lives on the Upper West Side, and he has a problem with alternate side of the street parking. So if I fix his parking tickets? 
You'll help me convict a rapist murderer? Isn't this how idealism dies? <laughs> no, what I think is really funny is that, um, so the Bronx DA says all the things to Jack McCoy that are true, that as an audience, the things that we love about him are the same things, you know, make him totally hateable. Like if you actually have to work with him or know him, that he has the white, you know, knight on the white horse complex, that he like lives in the higher plane, I think he says. And you really think it's going to get, like, serious? He's asking for this drug charge to be dropped on Timmy. You think it's going to get, like, you know, serious? And then he just asked for some parking tickets to be forgiven, which just seems like such a waste. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I kind of would have maybe gone for a little more than just that. Bitter, what do you think about you put Jack McCoy, who, yes, has been the maverick, but has been the uh, Don Quixote keeper of the law, and now, in order to do good, he has to sort of do this little maybe unethical thing, which is to fix parking tickets. That, I thought, was maybe one of the more uninteresting ways they could have put Jack in conflict with his ethics. Because I feel like with everything Jack has done before in the service of justice, that's such a small compromise to him <laughs> that I, th- I don't think it, it would be much of a dilemma. Let's talk about the sexual politics at play. Yes. We have Tito, <laughs> who pimps out sugar to get the job done. Cutter is directly accused of, quote, pimping out Ruberosa. Is that a false equivalency, Bitter? I think slightly. And I think the show is a little bit too much on Cutter's side as far as if he was right to do it the way he did. Because that whole argument, I don't know if, Rebecca, you have a lot to say about this. Oh, she does, which is why I went to you first. (laughs) I don't appreciate being pimped out to the jury. Connie, what about our meeting with Timmy Serco? You threw me out of the room because he was lusting after you. You used your sexuality to get what you wanted. All I did was ask you to leave, and then I conducted that interview exactly as I would have if you hadn't been there in the first place. If you say so, fine. Jack, are you going to say something? Jurors are people, lawyers are people, they have reactions. He'll put you in a burqa. Jack. Or hire robots to try cases. Until then, we use what we have. I think that Jack handles that argument poorly. Of of the three people there, while Cutter's making a position I, I really disagree with, I think Jack kind of gives a wishy-washy one, and I, th- I don't like how he doesn't back her up in that. Uh, he kind of dismisses Connie's point of view entirely and says... Well, we use what we have. And he's endorsing sort of pimping her out. And I don't feel like that was quite in keeping with Jack's character. And I like that Alana de la Garza sort of played that disappointment in Jack when we cut back to her reaction there. Because I think, I don't think either of the two men come out of that argument looking good. Okay, Rebecca, we've mansplained it for you. Let's thank you. Have it. Let's both barrels. Let's hear it. You've mansplained it just like the long mansplaining that takes place at the end of this episode, (laughs) during which these two men tell this woman why it's okay for them to use her sexuality to win cases total, excuse my language, fucking bullshit. First of all, I knew something was coming. I've seen this episode before, of course, but, you know, just like everyone else, it's like, Chinese food, I forgot it. And then I, <laughs> I watched it again, and I remembered watching the voir dire, and I'm, like, thinking, voir dire is very unusual in Law & Order episodes. Mm-hmm. You don't see it a whole lot. You know, that's a very boring part of the trial that we don't often get to see, usually just cut to the action parts. So I knew something was happening, but... When they framed up a second juror over yes. the shoulder of the first one that they're talking to? Yes. Yeah. 
And then we see the most side eye that's ever happened in a trial <laughs> ever, where the juror mm-hmm. just keeps looking over at the table at Connie, and then Cutter sends her up to do the argument. My my other one thing here, I really have a problem with the fact that they had her buying, what was the magazine called? The magazine's a Fashionella. Fashionella. <laughs> Connie, you can buy whatever kind of magazine you want, but it helps me make a better feminist argument for you when you're buying, like, The Atlantic. <laughs> just going to say that. Um, hey, it wasn't Tiger Beat. So, yeah. Uh, she has the cross-examination. She gets up there. She gets the anonymous note. This juror obviously has the hots for her, and then Cutter uses that to help win the case. She figures it out. She's pissed off. The right thing for Cutter to say is, I'm sorry. It was a bad decision that I made there. I saw an opening and I took it. I won't do it again. No. They go on this. Use what you have. You're sexy. It works. Let's use it. Here's the problem. And this is actually not just a moral problem that I have. It is a legal problem. Jack McCoy hires people to work in that office. Mm -hmm. Cutter ostensibly may or may not have hired Connie and is her supervisor, right? He's the one mentoring her. Remember, he allowed her to do the cross-examination. He's her supervisor. That is an inappropriate probably illegal and unethical, unethical work situation to like put her in the position where to say to her, you have to use this to win cases in an office where there's elections uh-huh. happening and winning cases is the only metric that matters. It is total fucking bullshit. If I were Connie, I would have quit in the spot and filed a lawsuit against the goddamn city of New York. OK, I'm going to tell you two things. One, these are fake people. <laughs> True. It was a script. Yeah. And if they had done the good thing. It wouldn't be a good episode. That's true. That's true. Now, but, but can I just say something else? Yeah. It's going to totally like derail everything I just said. Connie Barossa, by the way, is gorgeous. Great legs. The She's whole a beautiful, yeah. beautiful woman. And I do think that this whole thing, to me, felt a little bit satisfying that Jack was in the wrong side of it. Because, by the way, Jack himself hired a string of pretty goddamn good-looking women along the way. And this scene toward... But, so, yeah. It, it revealed to me he did that on purpose. He did that on purpose because it works in court. Oh, that's an interesting... I'd never looked at it that way. Because you're a man. That's That's why. But he he quite literally says that. It's TV, everybody's going to be hot. (laughs) But he quite literally says that. He says, we work with what we have. Right. And we could put you in a burqa. When's the last time we saw an ugly ADA on Law & Order? Never. That's when. We see plenty of average-looking defense attorneys. We see beautifully preserved, yet age-appropriate Patty Lapone as a defense attorney. We see uh, beautifully preserved, uh, yet age-appropriate Judith Light as a judge. In every other role in the courtroom on the show, we routinely see... Older women, not super thin women, regular looking folks in that assistant ADA chair, that second chair, there is always a super hottie McCotty. And this episode to me was a little bit of like a pointer to the fact that they do that for a reason and that Jack McCoy maybe is the architect behind that. Peter, I'm going to come to you before I get injured over here. Why, why are you going to get injured? <laughs> you, you, didn't do, you didn't do anything wrong. I, I know, I know, but I could see like... You're an enlightened just man. One, one moment. I, I wanted to go back to, really quickly, Connie's reaction to getting the email feels so off on so many levels <laughs> yeah. where she's kind of flattered by... First of all, it's an on, anonymous email that she shows no curiosity at all about how they got her email address. Second, it's a creepy email she's sort of flattered by, and I feel like... 
that's the wrong way to write that scene entirely, <laughs> uh, especially with how they have her take it later. Did that bug you too, Rebecca? Because that, that was what set my teeth on edge early on. Yeah, because my question would be, how am I getting this email anonymously? That would actually absolutely mm-hmm. be my question. I would be Googling that email address immediately to see who it belonged to. And if it was if it was one of those like anonymous email services, that makes it incredibly creepy. Well, it probably came from some Nigerian king too. <laughs> But yeah. the, the point about that scene that I wanted to make was that when she tells Cutter about the email, there is just that little flash on his face, like that he's, I don't know, jealous? Not surprised. Or, uh, yeah, like he doesn't know how to respond because, yeah, uh, you know, you've got great legs. And, I mean, he does later say, like, something along the lines of, People finding you attractive is not an uncommon occurrence. She is attractive. She is attractive. But as we know, going into the final season's bitter, that Cutter is carrying a torch for her. Are you surprised that the writers included this little flutter on his face? No, not at all. I think chronologically, this might be the first time we see that spark, too. I can't remember 100% sure, but it's definitely one of the earliest instances of, oh, he's got a little crush on her. A panel, in your opinion, what is the significance of the episode's title, Tango? Bitter, let's start with you. The only thing I could come up with is the way they try to play the two defendants off of each other. Because it's not really a case where Tango is, you know, the DA's office versus the defense attorneys. Because the defense attorneys are the most tepid non-entities we've had on the show in a while. So it's, it's got to be the, the dance between the two defendants. I think so, too. I mean, I think the expression takes two to tango, Mm -hmm. you know, and we have this uh, murder situation where the pimp set it up. It's his fault. I mean, he was an abuser. Melinda slash Sugar, you know, as much as I think we're supposed to feel good that she was convicted. I don't know. I didn't feel good about it because she was clearly being abused by this man for a long time. Um, You know, he he was doing something to lure her away from her parents' beautiful home in Suffolk County, which, by the way, was totally filmed in Westchester. But let's just keep that between us. Um, But, yeah, I I think it has to do with the defendants as well. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I think it actually refers to the sexual politics that we see playing out. Yes, it takes two to tango. Remember that while Ruberosa is upset that she feels that Cutter laid her out on a plate for this juror, he comes back at her and says, you kicked me out of the um, questioning with Timothy so that you could, like, flirt and wink and get what you wanted, too. Well, you know, being in jail and all, everything's so crowded. I'd just be uh, a little more comfortable if the room was a little uh, emptier. It's not that crowded. Mike, uh, why don't you wait outside and I'll handle this? Much better, isn't it? This isn't a date, Timmy. Do you know anything? But she didn't. But she did. No, she and didn't. And no, she uh, didn't. I disagree. I vehemently disagree with you. But she, I, I agree with you, Rebecca, because there's that in that argument. Cutter makes that point, and I had a moment of, oh, you didn't just go there. What you? is yeah, the first thing oh. she said to Timmy? She sent him out of the room because he was being annoying. Timmy started trying to talk to her, and she said, "This isn't a date." She nipped that in the bud. She did not flirt with Timmy. Then why did she ask Cutter to leave? Because he was being annoying. He wasn't. Cutter de- was being annoying. He wasn't getting it done. He was doing a bad job. Oh, she so you tell your boss, boss, get out. It's I'm time for saying, me. No, she, I don't she know. could do it, but she didn't. She did not use sex when he left the room. Well, I'm not saying. She- I think she knew that she would get more cooperation from him if it was one on one. That's and true. So yeah, she does. She plays that, but then immediately says, "This is not a date." Yeah. Like she doesn't make eyes at him or flirt with him. 
There's an early Jamie Ross episode where to get a jailhouse informant to say something, she has to take off her jacket. And I liked this time around, as soon as this conversation starts, she's like, this is not a date. Right. You know, you're here to tell me what I want to know. Angie Harmon used to do that all the time. The thing that I loved about the Angie Harmon character is that she looks so Connecticut, like she's so refined looking. She always looked like very polished with the pearls and the button up jacket. And she would just walk into those like prison interrogation rooms and just sit there just like she was Jack McCoy, and there was none of that bullshit, and I loved it. But there is a dance that goes on with the legal system and with attorneys who try to be charismatic and... Competitive. Competitive, and that is all part of the system, is the dance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've stumped the panel. <laughs> Let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. This episode is based on the 2006 killing of Jennifer Moore. The 18-year-old and her friend used fake IDs to go clubbing in Manhattan. After their car was towed, attendants refused to release it to Jennifer's friend because she was passed out drunk. While the friend received medical attention, Jennifer wandered away in the commotion. While walking, Jennifer called her boyfriend to say a man was following her. Then she disappeared. Security footage later showed Jennifer enter a hotel in New Jersey with Draymond Coleman, a small-time pimp. Inside, Jennifer was beaten and strangled. Coleman stuffed her body in a duffel bag, then disposed of it in a dumpster. Police used a new technique of triangulating Coleman's cell phone pings to place him at the murder scene and dump site. Investigators also arrested a young prostitute named Crystal Riordan and charged her with helping get rid of Jennifer's body. Many newspaper editorials called for nightclubs to do a better job spotting fake IDs and enforcing underage drinking laws as ways to protect potential victims. Other media blamed young party girls for their irresponsible choices. Coleman was sentenced to 50 years, and Riordan got 30 years for the murder of Jennifer Moore. Well, this was a real Control-F script. The details of Jennifer's party night and tragic murder are pretty much identical to Anne Marie's. Yeah, it's. I was trying to figure out what case this was based on, because usually in later period Law & Order, you're recognizing the real-life story, and I don't remember this real-life case at all. It, it was a big deal in New York, and the hooker, Crystal Riordan, also came from a pretty normal family. She was adopted, but she lived in the suburbs. Huh. And she also wound up on the streets. Now, Rebecca, don't we like to think that if you, you live in the suburbs and you go to church and you stay in school, your kids are never going to wind up in that situation? Isn't that the myth? Uh, no, it's not the myth in the New York area. I grew up in Long Island, where the two girls in this episode were from. It sounds like uh, that, that hooker was from Jersey. I mean, that is a lost opportunity, by the way, because every time the cops go to New Jersey on Law & Order, it's hilarious. <laughs> Huge lost opportunity. But the big fear when you live outside of New York is that you're going to sneak into New York and something is going to happen to you. At least that was the fear back like in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. Yeah, and bitter, while it could have been, they did not use this as a cautionary tale or a morality play about making bad decisions with alcohol and being underage. They basically just left Anne-Marie as the peripheral victim here and everything else focused on 
uh, hookers and pimps and creepy jurors and prosecutors with hot legs. Yeah, I feel like SVU probably would have done more with the victim in this case. But yeah, it, you're right. The victim is such a non-entity beyond just being the person whose murder we're prosecuting. I mean, just to call back to what you said at the beginning, Kevin, you sort of talked about girls wandering off into the woods during a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. I mean, whose fault is it that Little Red Riding Hood got eaten by the wolf? Really? Whose fault is it? Grandma? No. <laughs> oh, Cutter. She Stephen had... Sondheim? I don't... You got to work with what you have, right? You got to work with what you have. And it could be half a brain. Well, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, known as the Bitter Script Reader. Where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, you can find me uh, on my blog at thebitterscriptreader.blogspot.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is missing a few vowels to fit in the character limit, so just search Bitter Script Reader on Twitter, and I'll pop right up. And Rebecca Lavoy, how can our listeners follow you? They can follow me on Twitter at Reb Lavoy and on Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And they can also follow our other show at Crime Writers On on Twitter. And you can follow me on on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod. Our newsreader was Philip Ockelford. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valley's line editing by Henry Lavoie. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about on upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in in Crime crime media. Media. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.